This is a conversation with David Allen. Hi, David. Hi, how you doing? Good, thanks. So, um, you have been interested for a very long time about psychotherapy integration. Yeah, it started, when I was a resident, I was more interested in psychotherapy than I was in, in the biological aspects of it, but uh, it was in the 70s and the analysts were in charge, uh, and uh, they uh, were very arrogant as far as I could tell, and if you started questioning what they uh were you know what they were uh, advancing? You were told that uh, you needed to get in therapy to find out why you were resistant to the ideas, which is like three logical fallacies all in one. And then I came across all these different schools, and I had a very naive view of science at that time. And it didn't seem like uh, one built on another. Like I'd pick up something by Fritz Perls, and he said he would say the first thing we have to do is throw out everything Freud ever said. And I, I thought that was just really bizarre. And so I thought. I had this naive view of science that it builds on pre previous knowledge, but I didn't really understand it. So I started out after my residency doing biological psychiatry until I got bored to tears writing scripts um, and decided, well, you know, maybe I might want to uh, give psychotherapy another chance. And a psychologist friend of mine gave me the book by the famous book by Kuhn about paradigm shifts, and he was talking about how there's always various competing models in the young science. And I realized that psychology not only is a young science, but our subject matter uh, is not directly accessible. I didn't agree with the behaviorists that, who were saying that... So, uh, so, David, I just want to slow down a little bit because you're, you're talking about an enormous amount of things in this time, but yeah. really essentially that, that sense of uh, a very strong interest in uh, psycho psychotherapy and uh, a disappointment about this uh, discordant voices that didn't seem to be very logical and in a way where there was even a, a sense of pathology in the way they were going about uh, talking about what they were doing. Exactly. And then uh, that big shift was about realizing that actually these discordant voices, it was, it was okay to have them and it was not about, it didn't have to be all logical and all integrated that you were going to actually try to make sense of this whole mess. Right, and uh, I, I guess I was sort of uh, narcissistic or grandiose or something, and I thought, you know, that I'd start writing a book about trying to put all this together. And uh, the same psychologist who gave me the book by, by Kuhn also introduced me to family systems thinking, which I thought seemed a bit more logically in a way because humans are social organisms and uh, the behaviors would talk about food pellets and electric shocks as being primary reinforcers but not other people which I thought was you know, really strange. Plus, I was building a practice, and I was always interested in borderline personality disorder uh, because they were sort of a microcosm of everything everything wrong <laughs> psychologically that could possibly uh, be in one person without being uh, you know, brain damaged or psychotic. Uh, and I built a practice because nobody else wanted to, uh, ref to treat them, basically. So, in fact, people would apologize to me for uh, sending them to me, and I said, no, no, I don't mind. And I gradually tried to figure out why they were acting that way because I realized that what half of what, almost all of what they were doing was kind of an act. Yeah, uh, uh, they could turn it off and on like a uh, faucet. And so, so I'm, I'm again, uh, if you don't mind, I would interrupt you here to say uh, that what strikes me in what you're saying is uh, it's very nice as you're talking about integration and as you're talking about you know your your search for a theory. What you're describing is also grounding uh, this process in the various uh, events and realities of your life. So we're not talking about uh, you um, having a disembodied sense of a theory, but you're saying this is what happened first in terms of my encounter 
with uh, psychiatry and the dissatisfaction of being somebody who was simply writing prescriptions, uh, my dissatisfaction with what happened with the science or so-called science of psychotherapy at that time, uh, my experience in the fact that I was dealing with borderline personality people, uh, the chance encounter with family systems therapy, and so in a way, uh, that integration is something that happened to you as a way of dealing with separate experiences and making sense of them. Correct. And in the meantime, whenever I have a no-show or something, I pick up one of the major theorists, and I kind of went through all of them, and I actually got to family systems kind of late in the business, and I got to Murray Bowen's theory last in this series, and it's like he, it was like a, a revelation, he'd sort of put it all together. Um, but I was still a little troubled even by Bowen's stuff, because again, he, he sort of uh, didn't really focus enough on the individual, it was like all the system, plus when he, uh, he would train his patients to go sort of he called differentiate themselves in their family of origin, which means that they would sort of uh, not participate in the usual triangles and and kind of uh, feedback loops. And he would train them to be strategic family therapists with their mm -hmm. own family rather than Bowen therapists, as was pointed out by a guy named Dan Weil in a book called Couples Therapy. So I so I said, yeah, well, why not train people to be Bowen therapists with their family of origin and, right. use, and use collaboration, corroboration, understanding the genograms and how these patterns developed over time and why people were acting out and mistreating each other uh, with the goal of them uh, understanding their position in the family. And I found that people having insight into why their families acted the way they did was actually more helpful than having in, um, insight into why they acted the way they did because they could understand why they acted the way they did if they understood why the family members were giving them all these double messages. So, so that's a very, very strong sense of um, um, what a human being is, a social animal, uh, how we are, we come from a family environment, and paying attention to all. Uh, that the family environment does to us, uh, which is very important, not using this to uh, simply eliminate the idea of individual development, but looking at the interaction and the context, and paying attention to this context, uh, not just as a therapist, but also sharing it with your clients as a way to help them think in this way and see things in this perspective. Absolutely, and, but in order to do that, you kind of had to understand what the family was actually doing, and borderlines mm -hmm. had this reputation for distorting everything. Um, but uh, some of my borderline patients were annoyed at constantly being accused of distorting everything, so they would uh, record, and I'm talking about adult patients, not children, they would record conversations with their parents when the parents didn't know they were being recorded, which is illegal in some states, but it's not illegal for me to listen to them, and they'd bring the tape back to me to sort of prove that they weren't distorting. And mm -hmm. I started hearing the most amazing things and realized that you know, I wasn't asking the right questions. Um, and even in, in couples therapy, um, if I started saying, well, what, are your, what does your mother-in-law say about this? I would get all this information that they never thought to volunteer. Sometimes I found the spouse knew more about their in-laws than the child of those people uh, mm. so, on certain subjects. And I was wondering, you know, why, why that is. Um, so I started getting interested in sort of uh, feedback loops, but not, not in the uh, circular sense, but in the dialectical sense. I didn't know what dialectics was at the time, so I kind of reinvented the wheel. And mm -hmm. was uh, looking at all this mutual, simultaneous um, change going on by people affecting each other, 
And I also knew that the, the family was way more powerful than I could ever be, in, for good or bad, in affecting my patient's behavior. Like I would, when I was doing behaviorist interventions, I would do assertiveness training, and they'd be all ready to go confront their dad or whatever like that, and then they'd come back the next week with their tail between the legs. And that just was pretty consistent. I realized, you know, I'm no match for these uh, people. And then all this biological information, which I wrote about uh, recently, started coming out about early fear tracks and things like the amygdala and how there's cells that respond to sp- familiar faces but not unfamiliar faces. And I realized... Um, what I meant, alluded to earlier, that uh, it's not only people that are um, the most important reinforcers of, of maladaptive behavior, but uh, primary caretakers were more powerful, even as even in, as people reached adulthood, than any other people. And they were the most potent reinforcers, and it worked on a, a variable intermittent reinforcement schedule, so you didn't even have to have a lot of contact with them. It's like the feeling you get when you've been away from your parents for a long time and you, you walk in the door and you feel like an adolescent again. It, was, mm-hmm. it, it didn't have, it didn't take very much. Um, and I also noticed that uh, these patients were very good at getting me to sound just like their parents. When I listen to the, um, the tapes, I go, oh my God, I, I sound just like them. How did they get me mm-hmm. to do that? Man, they're good. You know, and I realized uh, there was something kind of going on on yeah. there. Um, so, so what is really striking there is that um, uh, that way of finding a way to include in this therapeutic process the whole context of the family, uh, being listening and finding ways to understand more how the family works, um, understanding that simply. Uh, talking about it or talking about assertiveness in the session doesn't take into consideration the actual difficulty of finding these very powerful figures. Um, noticing how these same uh, cycles, the same games, in a way, can be replayed and how you can be pulled into it. So, really, really very big context. And how this also fits, in a way, within a behavioral model of uh, this intermittent reinforcement. Exactly. And then the one last piece of the puzzle came. Uh, I read Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm, which talked about the evolution of uh, individuality from collectivism uh, over history. Uh, and I realized that there were cultural changes going on that were impacting the family. And as some family therapists had pointed out, that some people are kind of stuck with old rules and there are so many static mechanisms for reinforcing those rules, but what they didn't talk about was how people could be ambivalent about those rules because the culture was is changing at a more rapid clip than it used to, so that the, the demands for more individuated behavior uh, are escalating. Um, so uh, some people, some families would really kind of get stuck using old rules, but would be highly ambivalent about it. Uh, for instance, it's obvious in the, in the case of the role of women in particular. Um, during World War II, the Rosie the Riveter phenomenon led to women joining the workforce, and they suddenly realized that, hey, maybe there's more to life than uh, being a housewife and mother. But then after the war, there were actually government propaganda films that said, uh, great job, girls, but time to go back and get barefoot and pregnant again, which then they all did, which led to the baby boom. And their daughters, though, grew up in the 60s when the, mm-hmm. feminist, then the feminist movement was really, and the women's lib movement was first exploding. So their, their daughters would come, 
and say, oh, women can have it all. We can be astronauts, and uh, you know, we can, we're going to have fewer kids. And uh, and uh, they would come home talking about this to mom, and mom would, you know, like faint because it would remind her that she didn't get to do that. But she'd never been validated for, or consensually validated, or mirrored, uh, to use the cohesion term for. Uh, being career oriented so the daughter's success was in a way uh, 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 problematic for her on the one hand she people live vicariously through their kids so uh, they kind of want their daughter to go out and have a career um, but at the same time it reminded them A that they didn't get to and but they, and they couldn't really endorse it without upsetting their family of origin and their mm-hmm. family structure um, so they so they uh, and they were so they couldn't do it themselves, and it reminded them. Plus, they had all these fears that you know um, women would end up with the short end of the stick if they if yeah. they did that. And there was an article in Newsweek that said that the odds of a 34-year-old uh, career woman or something like that uh, of getting married were somewhat akin to being uh, the odds of being hit by a terrorist. And this was way before 9/11, um, and that created this huge cultural uh, stir and everybody was kind of freaking out and stuff that, and you know men don't like women that are smarter than they are and all this so 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 the the woman would if it was a healthy family the the mother and the daughter would agree sort of they just won't talk about it very much but if the mom got too upset uh, the rest of the family would gang up on the daughter and say how can you treat your mother this way what's the matter with you uh, and you can just imagine everybody you know and love uh, care and care about Coming at you like that, how powerful that would be. So, uh, but women were still kind of, but those, but the daughters were still conflicted because they were also getting positive vibes from their mom about the careers because of that vicarious thing that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So they yeah. would, they would think their, their mom was either mad, bad, or stupid, basically. And they'd have no idea because the mom wouldn't talk about why she was giving off all these crazy double messages. Um, and so it's a, it's a very powerful example in here about how uh, change is not just processed by an individual, but is processed by society as a whole and is processed within the family unit. And uh, in a way, all of these different ways of processing influence each other. And when you see somebody in the therapy room, you're not just dealing with their own processing, but the result of all of this, uh, you know, uh, group processing. Right. And the whole history of the relationship is more important than any single element within that relationship so people say well people are if these people are sort of sacrificing themselves for the for family homeostasis how do you explain oppositional behavior well that's easy if you think that that's what the family wants you to do be oppositional then the oppositionality is more apparent than real because you're actually cooperating Mm-hmm. Family so that's the paradox that oppositional behavior is a form of cooperation. It is the form of cooperation that you believe is expected of you in the family. Yeah, you're expected to be the black sheep. That's your view of what's happening in the family. So it's not just what people are doing, but it's how you interpret it. But it's a perfectly logical interpretation when you're kind of getting a wink-wink, nod-nod, uh, when you start acting out like a uh, one page patient mother kind of had borderline traits and when her kids would act out and get into trouble and she would describe that in therapy she'd have a big smile on her face uh, and I'm thinking well if I'm seeing that then so are the kids mm-hmm. so uh, psychoanalysts used to call uh, this phenomenon super ego lacunae holes in the mother's super ego where, mm-hmm. she, where she would tell them that you shouldn't act like this but then when they did she'd seem to get off on it um, mm-hmm. That's an example of a, of a really extreme double message, and uh, 
the whole context of the mother's behavior is going to be more important than any single thing that the mother says. So uh, actions speak louder than words, but words are also actions, so you have to take that into consideration as well. Um, yeah. So, so as you uh, put this very uh, strong view of how, you know, the importance of the context, society as a whole, what happens in the family, uh, what the double message that the parents can give, the different ways in which that message is given and delivered, um, we get into a really strong uh, importance of the context, and the, um, yet you also started as a biologically oriented psychiatrist, you are a psychiatrist, you teach psychiatry, so how do you reconcile, how do you navigate, you know, the part that is somatic, that is genetic, that is, uh, you know, that you can act on, on the body, and the part of interactions that come from uh, either more context or uh, purely psychological phenomena? Again, I don't, I don't view that as a, as, a, as a difficulty because the medicines that we have basically are, are treat symptoms. They don't treat uh, diseases with the possible exception of lithium maybe. Um, so uh, if somebody's having panic attacks and we have medicine that stop panic attacks, in order to do psychotherapy with a borderline, and something like 40% of borderlines have panic disorder as well, uh, I'm asking them to think about really, really upsetting stuff. And uh, when I get to the homework phase, where I'm actually teaching them how to discuss family dynamics with very resistant, defensive uh, primary attachment figures, uh, if they're having panic attacks, they're not going to do very well. So... Luckily, we have medications for that, so I can put them on medication, which helps reduce, lower the bar. I mean, if enough upsetting things happen, they're going to get upset no matter what. But uh, medications like SSRI antidepressants uh, decrease neuroticism. They, they lower the bar, so it takes more to get them in a dis- emotionally dysregulated state. So, yeah. so I'm using the medication as a way to help me do the therapy. Um, you know, there's certain conditions which I see I think are brain diseases, and I get into big arguments about this with the anti-psychiatry folks on the blog. Um, I think the the whole sphere of what's a brain disease and what's a, a, a condition response gets really murky with all the debates on the DSM-5, and I don't want to get into that too much. But I, I do think there are certain brain diseases. I think real melancholic clinical depression is is a, is a, is a disease, and the antidepressants, uh, they don't cure it, but they... they and we don't even know how they work, frankly. Um, and then w- when the patient is in a euthymic state, then I have to reevaluate them to see if they also have access, you know, access to issues, personality issues. Uh, you know, just because uh, you don't have a, you're not in clinical depression, doesn't mean you're a happy camper. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another mistake that the so-called biological psychiatrists make. They assume that it's an, if somebody's unhappy after you uh, treat them with an antidepressant, it must be due to a partial response to the medication, when in fact you just return them to their baseline, which is sort of dysthymic. Or, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so they add more medication, and you get these people coming in on just incredibly stupid combinations of drugs, and then they get changed over and over again because they don't work, obviously. Um, and... Uh, because of a lot of other forces that I write about in my newer book, uh, psychiatrists are are being sort of brainwashed into thinking that everything's biological in the sense of being uh, abnormalities in in brain functioning. Uh, But we know that the brain is plastic and and changes uh, in shape and size in a lot of other different parts of the brain, and certainly in in neural connectivity um, because of social interactions. 
So every time they find a, a difference between, say, borderlines and, and uh, normals, they automatically label it an abnormality, when in fact it, it may just be a, the brain's conditioned response and an adaptive one to a particular environment. And so, therefore, the possibility of actually the brain uh, changing as the conditions are changing. Right. Uh, the brain, uh, if you have to react, well, let me let me put let me get, put this with an example. Uh, borderline patients tend to react very quickly, and that's labeled mm-hmm. pathology. Uh, but there's something called error management theory. Uh, so let's say um, you're walking through the woods and uh, you see an animal. Now, if you uh, mistake a bear for a raccoon and you run away, well, um, that's... You'll live. You'll live. But if, if you make the opposite mistake, uh, you'll die. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, if you mistake a, a raccoon for a bear and you and you run away, well, you've expended a little energy, but, you know, big deal. But if you make the mistake of mistaking a bear for a raccoon, you, you end up being dead. So the brain conditions itself to respond quickly because... Uh, that makes sense in terms of your ultimate survival. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got it's it's it costs more energy to under. I mean, it, there's more of a cost if you underreact than if you overreact. Um, so the brain programs itself to overreact. Yeah. Over over years, uh, so you'll see changes in the amygdala size in, in patients with borderline. But it's a, it's a conditioned response, and there's some data which I wish we'd get published. But I keep hearing rumors about it that you know, using something called schema therapy, that that can be reversed. Uh, but I don't know if it if it held up or not because I haven't seen it published. But I'm hopeful that that's in fact true. Uh, mm-hmm. That that would mean that some of these things at least might be reversible. Um, yeah, so so you're talking about the fact that in a way a lot of these things that seem strange are uh, actually logical conclusions of right. the body of the organism uh, to the circumstances that are around them, and that as they are reactions or side effects, symptoms, uh, adaptations, they can also be changed uh, either by changing the environment or changing how this person adapts to the environment. Right, they can be overridden by the thinking parts of the brain. They never really go away. That's yeah. they can, you can learn to override them. Um, but uh, if your if your environment changes long enough, then maybe some of them might uh, might be reversible. But I imagine that would take a lot a lot of time. What I find is my uh, the patients that do do well with my type of therapy, their neuroticism level stays high, even though they they feel a lot better and they're doing a lot better, uh, which tells me things haven't reversed yet in terms of the, the underlying biology. They're just better able to override it, uh, which right. is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being sensitive. I mean, when you think about it, that's not a problem per se. It's only a problem in certain contexts, if and it's how you respond to the sensitivity uh, that creates the problem. You know, sensitive- so, so in a way, what we're talking about here is in a very general way, a sense of um, the human being as this social animal that is subject to influences in the environment that in turn affect the nervous system, that in turn affects the behavior, and that uh, psychotherapy in lots of ways is understanding those things that create, you know, the the problems we're observing and a sort of uh, the possibility of retraining the uh, nervous system uh, to better adapt uh, and there is a line about some limitations uh, of, that people may have, but essentially the possibility of retraining the nervous system. 
Okay, but again, if the parents are re- if they're reinforcing the 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 old ones, they're going to be more powerful than the therapist. So that yes. that has to change first. Yes, and, and it's very and old habits die hard. Uh, it's interesting that the show Super Nanny, which I'm kind of, I don't watch all the time, but I'm a fan of it. I think. It, she always has to go back to reinforce what she she changes the family dynamics, um, and then but but then she leaves and they automatically start reverting back to their old habits and she has to come again and get them back on on track. And, and I know they might be picking and choosing what they show and it's a TV show, but that's but that's kind of very in line with my experience uh, yeah. with the way families operate. And, um, and that's uh, what you're talking about is having a healthy respect for the fact that the changes, the uh, the uh, the way people are, is really strongly implanted because it's been, you know, that we've had this intermittent reinforcement, but by very important people. Very so you important can't people. just assume that it's going to suddenly disappear because it's been pointed out. Well, exactly. I mean... Uh, the, I think that's a big mistake of the psychoanalysts. They think that the transference re- cure, the transference relationship changes, is going to generalize to the other uh, important relationships in the, in the patient's life, but the other people in, their, in the patient's life don't act like the analyst. So you can get a, a patient have a lot of insight and be very, very adaptive to being in the analytic situation, but then when they go out in the world, well, again, it depends. If, if, everybody, if the family accepts the change, or it just creates a little bit of a, of a ripple and nothing too bad happens, then great. And then, so that's why people that aren't very disturbed get better with just about anything that you do because mm-hmm. the family doesn't start to overreact. But with borderline families, I mean, you can get people killed uh, if you start uh, getting people to change their behavior. The, the reactions are, are just are just incredible. Or you can, or you can, or the parents can commit suicide. Um, yeah, yeah. You can see how powerful if you if you change your behavior so, and mom sticks her head in the oven, that's going to have a really stronger effect than anything. Yeah, or even if there is that possibility, that's going to be quite a damper on it. Yeah, talk a yes. little bit about you know maybe about what happens you know the way you do therapy and maybe a, an example of vignette or something that gives a, a little sense of how uh, you know how you deal with this kind of situation. Well, it's a stage therapy. It's it's hard to give examples because. Uh, yeah, I'd have to give a whole case to really yeah. understand it. Uh, the first thing I do with, with borderlines is get them to stop acting out with me, and I've learned uh, that the certain types of responses, uh, if they do this, you do this, and all. And, and people that deal with borderlines from all schools all start with the same basic uh, strategies, uh, Masterson, Linehan, uh, Lorna Benjamin. Uh, we, we have different theories about why they work, um, but uh, they're survival skills for therapists so that the patient doesn't act out with you. And mm-hmm. except in very severe cases, it turns out that's amazingly easy to do once you know the tricks of the trade. They're still going to test it and be difficult and uh, a little bit, but they're not, you know, people ask me, how can you treat several borderlines? And I go, well, it's not really a big, big problem. I mean, they can still, in really bad cases, they can still act out no matter what you do. Um, so the first stage is sort of getting their cooperation and getting them to quit screaming at you and <clears throat> trying to undermine and trying to entice you into boundary violations and uh, trying to make you feel helpless. Um, that's one of the reasons I got interested in them because I was so challenged because they made me feel so helpless that I couldn't stand it and I had to figure out how to reverse that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized, well, you are kind of helpless, so it's it's sort of being anxious about being helpless is what they're really trying to go for. But if you, you sort of admit helplessness, that kind of, Kind of doesn't give them anywhere else to go. You can say, "Well, you're right. yeah, yeah." Um, okay, so that's the first kind of the first stage, and then I start 
I actually start with sort of a free association instruction uh, to have them to start talking about, but I don't tell them to free associate about anything, but about their basically about their chief complaint, which I frame mm-hmm. as either as either um, uh, affective or anxiety symptoms of unknown etiology, uh, any repetitive self-defeating or self-destructive behavior pattern, uh, or overt family discord and personality disorders. If, the, if you see one of those, if you wait long enough, you'll see the, you'll always see the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I frame therapy as a two-part deal. First, we have to figure out what's going on, uh, and then we have to figure out uh, what you're going to do about it. So you're mm-hmm. dividing it into two parts. So I give them the free association. I tell them the free association about their chief complaint, basically, or about the f- that particular frame. Uh, and I'm listening for, for certain types of patterns and kind of asking questions about and when family dynamics pop up, which they invariably do, uh, I'll start asking certain kinds of questions. Now, I've already taken a complete social history, so I have a sort of a skeleton that I can hang facts on. Um, so once I find out uh, what the double messages are, what, what's reinforcing the self-defeating uh, behavior, um, then the next step is to figure out, well, why are your folks acting like this? Because it's not enough to just point out what's happening. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to understand why. So that leads and, to and just uh, just for a moment, when you're in that part, you say you're you're figuring out what the uh, the messages are, these conflicting messages. Um, at that moment, your uh, patient is aware of that nature, or is uh, just in a way reporting them without having awareness of it. Awareness of, of what? Um, of the of the uh, mixed messages, or the complexity of it, or of the Role. I mean, no, they uh, don't. Yeah, they don't. They they sort of know that they're getting it, but they don't necessarily conceptualize it in those terms. Right, okay. But I'm starting to point it out, point it out. Yeah, and I'm being very empathic with how confused they must be when. Uh, I mean, I literally had one. Uh, had a patient who's when she turned 12 or 13. I can't remember. Her dad uh, raped her and then bought her a pony the next day. Like how you know? And we accuse our patients of splitting. How do we explain dad's behavior? I mean, that's so bizarre, right? Right. Um, right. Um, so, so in a way, even at that part where you're collecting information, uh, there is also an educational and a and a and a, a containing role in that. Very, in the yeah, way you're gathering that information. Yeah, it's very psychoeducational. The whole thing is really. You know, mm-hmm. I think I ask people what about their previous therapy, and I'll say, well, what did you learn? And they look at me like, huh? I was supposed to learn something. Now that might be there. They maybe they did, and they just don't realize it. But uh, to me, it's it's you're really t- you're really teaching them. Uh, yeah, about what's going on. So when we sort of identify the patterns, I say, well, why are they happening? Then we do the so that leads to the genogram where we start exploring the parents' background. And it's not we're not just digging up skeletons to examine examine the past. That's the the the, the uh, dichotomy between you know the here and now and the and the historical is to me nonsensical because uh, what's going on in the here and now is just, you know is based on how we've uh, reacted and changed to things we've learned over the entire history of things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's still happening. The past is still here. It's in, you know it's in our heads. I mean, uh, people don't leave disconnected lives where they're different people from one second to the next. <laughs> it's kind of a uh, kind of a, fa- a false dichotomy between there. So you know we're not only looking at your background, but we're looking at your parents' background, and then we start. And I start having them research. Um, usually by interviewing relatives, but a lot of times they are they know a lot of the important stuff, so we can come up with a hypothesis about why the family is acting the way it is, which might be something similar to what I when I was talking about the women's evolution of the women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the main purpose of that is so the parent, so the patient can be somewhat empathic with the parents instead of so angry about it. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Again, when I started in therapy and was trying Gestalt techniques, I was always trying to get people in touch with their anger, and all I got was uh, denial, 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 denial. So then, instead, I, I, I tried being trying to be real empathic with their parents to them, and then guess what I got? Anger, anger, anger. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, well, I think there's some ambivalence here, right? You know. So, so if you hold, if you hold one pole, the other is going to show up. Yeah. Right, right. Because they're ambivalent. And so of course, if you just focus on one side, the other side's going to rear its head. Uh, and I define empathy uh, very specifically as different than sympathy. Sympathy means you're saying, well, I understand why you did what you did, then it's okay. Well, if you've been abused. It ain't okay, and, mm-hmm. and that's not empathic. Empathic is just trying to understand why they felt they had to do without without agreeing necessarily that it was okay for them to have done that. In fact, if you're sympathetic to a child abuser, that's not empathic because they know that you're full of crap. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to say, well, it's okay that you raped me. Well, these people aren't idiots. Some of them seem to brag about it, but, but that's all an act, too. Uh, they're really know what people think of child abusers and they feel horrible about it and their biggest sort of fear is that their children hate them um, mm-hmm. but then they also fear that they also feel that their kids are better off without them so they sort of push them away and kind of drag them in at the same time and, it, and that leads to a lot of the sort of borderline stuff and not all borderline not all borderline families are, are physically or sexually abusive but they all have these uh, sort of wicked double binds that are going on in the family uh, and uh, putting people in these sort of positions where you know they're, they're, the parents seem to need them to be around all the time, but seem to hate their guts at the same time, um, and, mm-hmm. and that's in, what's what I find is a very consistent pattern uh, in, in borderline families. I mean, uh, is that the parents seem to be really highly ambivalent about the whole idea of having parents? So they. Several studies have shown that they oscillate between hostile over-involvement and hostile under-involvement. And in some families, one or the other may predominate. Uh, but if you wait long enough, uh, you'll see the other side. Yeah, yeah. So, so that uh, really a key consideration is that difficulty integrating these two uh, poles of the ambivalence. Really wanting to uh, to be there and hating the guts. You know, just that. Uh, well, and that leads to something which, again, I, I can. Uh, was identified by Melanie Klein, who I really think was kind of crazy, but uh, something called spoiling behavior, and she had a, an explanation that had something to do with being primitive envy at the mother's breast, which made no sense to me. But spoiling is when you, um, since they, they seem to want you around and not grow up, but then they hate your gut, so if you destroy and ruin everything they did and make them feel bad and constantly tell them how, how awful they are and this, that, and the other, uh, that, that allows the parents to main, maintain the parental role, at the same time, it gives them an excuse for being angry. So it's like mm. the perf- it's like the perfect solution. So they think they're giving the parents exactly what they need. And if the parent gets too angry, then they make them feel guilty. And if the patient starts feeling and the parent starts feeling guilty, then they switch over to the anger side. So they're in a sense regulating their parents' emotions. And it's really chaotic. But it would be even worse if they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's one, I guess another piece of this is something called kin selection, which means that uh, this we've inherited a tendency to sacrifice ourselves for our collective group because whether a, a genetic adaptation gets passed down is not dependent on individuals because the 
person with a great adaptation may be killed before they reproduce, but the survival of the most number, the, the largest number of people with adaptation. So, uh, and, and Darwin wrote about this. It's not accepted by a lot of evolutionary biologists, but I think it's more for political reasons because it might, you know, it might be misused like eugenics or something like that if we start saying yeah, we have yeah. a tendency to, that it's better for the group if, uh, if the weaker members don't uh, destroy the group. Um, but we've evolved past that, so I don't think that's really a, uh, an issue. So we all have this tendency. But, you know, that what you were saying there with the example of the kid, you know, who's uh, who's acting, you say, um, it seems strange what he's doing, but in a way the kid is regulating the, the family's behavior. So it's very interesting because where the brain is essentially a regulatory organ, and uh, that if you look at the, not just one person but the family as an organism, you end up having in that family the the kid who is deputized as the regulatory organ and right, takes right. on that role. Yeah, and uh, Mnuchin talked about about that too. About uh, like the, he he would uh, get a family and the kid would be acting out, and at the end of the session the kid would be playing nicely and the parents would be arguing because it was really a marital problem and they were and the kid was mm-hmm. triangulating himself into the marital problem in order to present the, prevent the parents from tearing each other apart. Um, so I mean, when you see that, uh, you realize that uh, a lot of therapists are getting a really skewed view of what their patients are doing just by, just because they're looking only at their behavior in the office and they you know they don't really know what's going on the other seven days seven or six days and twenty three hours of the week. Um, and if you don't know the right questions to ask, patients don't necessarily tell you. Um, I, one one example I gave of a patient that uh, complained of. Uh, a sort of anxiety and mild depression, which responded to antidepressants, and we were trying to identify what triggered them. And she, for months, she never told me that she'd have a conversation with her mother every single day and feel nauseated afterwards. Mm. This is a lady with a PhD. And I'm going, mm-hmm. why didn't you think to tell me that before? You know, you have anxiety and you get nauseated after this conversation with your mother every day, you have every day, and you, you didn't think that was important? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of don't ask, don't tell is what I what I refer to. It mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you don't know to ask about this stuff, they don't bring it up. People are very protective of their families, contrary to what a lot of people would have you believe. Uh, and they're, and if you look at all uncomfortable talking about, say, child abuse, uh, they're not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. But they're trying, you know, it's because you're uncomfortable. It's not because they won't, they, you know, they won't tell you. But you re- you re- you're recreating the situation where people. In their family, say, well, you're not supposed to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Inadvertently recreating. Uh, so how you act uh, depends, and what questions you ask and how comfortable you are asking them uh, depend, uh, leads to what kind of information you're, and how accurate the information is that you're going to get. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to finish sort of the, the sure. general arc of therapy. So after we establish some empathy, then we have to figure out, well, how are you going to discuss the family dynamics so that we can we can change this when we have all these powerful emotions dealing with. So we, I, I, I use role-playing to uh, figure out the best approach. I have several different possible approach uh, strategies, and I have them play the, the parent, and I try out the strategy, and I 
warn them, don't do this until we both decide that this is a good idea uh, and, this, and, and that you've had a chance to practice it. So I sort of see what they're up against. So I tell them to play their parents. And borderlines sometimes don't like to play their mothers, but they'll say, well, she would say such and such. And well, that, that's not quite as good, but it's, it's almost as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll try different strategies, and I'll push them, and I'll see what kind of defenses and what sorts of sensitivities I'm going to run up against. Plus, I, we've got the genogram data. We know the interactional pattern. So uh, I get a pretty good idea. With, and, and I usually invite a parent in for a conjoint session every day if they're available. Uh, and I have a strategy for doing that as well. Uh, so I have a pretty good idea about what kinds of reactions they're going to get. And if I don't, the patient's been living with these people most of their life. or uh, So they're pretty good at predicting how the parents might respond. Um, so they sort of show me up what they're up against. And then I keep trying a strategy till I find something that gets to where I want to go. So we can talk about when you do this, I feel this way. And I, so I need you to quit doing that. And this is why we all are doing that. Um, and then we, when I get a strategy, I change places and have them practice on me and I do a little sort of method acting where I try to get in, in character of what the parent is like and I play the parent as the worst possible way the parent uh, could be to pre- as a worst case scenario. So if mm-hmm. they go and talk to the parent, they'll A, be prepared if it does turn out to be that bad. But luckily, most of the time, I'm worse... I'm the worst version of their mother than their mother if this if we mm-hmm. come up with a good strategy. So that the patient has an initial success in meta-communicating or talking about the way that the family interacts. And they have, they sort of have to confront each primary figure one at a time uh, because otherwise you get people ganging up against them, which is really difficult to, uh, to stand your ground when, when you've got more than one parental figure uh, trying to get you to shut up because the message they get is, you're wrong to do this, change back. It comes from, mm-hmm. from Murray Bowen. Um, so... They have to sort of do it one at a time, and then other people can triangulate themselves in, too. So before we even get to that, we may have to detriangulate. There's strategies for detriangulating uh, interfering relatives, which might be the other parent, but could also be uncles. or I mean, sometimes we've had relatives pop out of the woodwork that they hadn't even talked to in years come up and say, how can you treat your mother that way? You know, it's, it, mm. it's just really amazing how this sort of and communication just goes through the whole family. Uh, and if we're successful... Uh, and we can get a change in the family behavior, then um, a lot of times that, that's enough uh, to have people stop these sort of self-destructive patterns. The hardest part, though, of course, is getting them to do it with their parents. That can take a long time yeah. because people, even in functional families, are very loath to talk about family dynamics. It's just not something that we're comfortable uh, doing. And in a dysfunctional family, especially if there's been violence or abuse, in fact, sometimes this has to be done over the phone because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid there could be violence, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult. So, you know, people say, well, what's your success rate? Well, it's really hard for me to say. If they do it, it's very high. But, mm-hmm. I, don't always get them, but I don't always get them to do it. Uh, and they have to stick with this for quite, you know, it just takes a while to, to get through all of this uh, and overcome the resistance. Um, but if they do it, you sh- sometimes that's enough. Sometimes you have to then do sort of simple cognitive behavioral techniques to get people to start dating different kinds of people instead of alcoholics or whatever. Uh, but a lot of times they already really know how to do that anyways. Uh, mm-hmm. They just act like they don't know how to do a lot of these things. Um, and so they may spontaneously start doing it, but if not, you can you can sort of help them along. And then then doing straight CBT is very effective because you're not mm-hmm. you're not fighting the system anymore. You're not you're not opposed to what everybody else is trying to get them to do, or or, mm. or behavior that they may not try. I really shouldn't say trying to get them to do because I don't think parents are necessarily trying to get them to act this way. But they're reacting. But more of the they're reacting negative. There's a momentum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, 
if so because they are, they're more powerful than I am, if I can get them to quit reinforcing the old behavior patterns, then it's much easier to get yeah. people to do the uh, the new uh, the new patterns. Um, so that's that's basically sort of the the arc of of, um, of treatment, and it can take a while. And uh, because I was an academic and I only had a few patients, the ones that were the most difficult tended tended to be the one that's that stuck with me. So I ended up with all the difficult patients. So it looked like my success rate was absolutely horrible. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all. And that was sort of a, a, a <laughs> that, that all the all the more difficult patients were the ones I ended up stuck with, because um, <laughs> the other ones had left. You know, they got better and, and moved on. Um, so yeah, doing psychotherapy research, I found out is a uh, oh, good grief. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Very difficult stuff. Mm-hmm. I admire people that do it, but I don't think it, it really gives a good flavor of what really happens in therapy. Yeah, yeah. So David, as we're coming to the end, is there um, a thought or something that we can um, uh, conclude with? Well, I think. Empathy is sort of really important in trying to see the logic in what looks like mad, bad, or crazy. Um, trying to find the underlying sense uh, that it makes, uh, given what we're working with in the terms of how, how the human uh, mind and brain kind of work, uh, instead of looking at us at as pathological. That's one of the tricks mm-hmm. in getting borderlines to behave, by the way, is you find, the, find something to, to be empathic about, uh, like say a trust issue, you know, when some analysts bring it up, it's like you've got a big problem. You don't trust people. Mm. Well, if you came to a world where everybody was a backstabber, you'd have to be an idiot to trust people. Um, right, right. So I'd say, well, of course you don't trust anybody. Why would you? That would be stupid. You know, I can see why you would have that that issue. Of course, you know, uh, instead of being criticized, them uh, they may act like they're, oh yeah, yeah, you. But yeah, it really kind of hooks them in. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> to do that, so yeah. I think so. Trying to see the logic in, in terms of the whole, the way people interact, uh, and how that the behavior kind of fits into that pattern, like a puzzle piece almost, um, to me is is really more important than any particular technique. Yeah. So so it feels very important that in a way the way you describe empathy uh, is also very much that feels like seeing the context. And so uh, it's that sense of, you know, in a way the family systems and all of this is part of finding a context where what is happening makes sense. And once you find a context where when it's happening makes sense, there is the possibility of change. Right. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, David. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Really, kind of hooks them in. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to do that. So yeah. I think so. Trying to see the logic in, in terms of the whole, the way people interact, uh, and how that the behavior kind of fits into that pattern, like a puzzle piece almost. Um, to me, is is really more important than any particular technique. Yeah, so so it feels very important that in a way the way you describe empathy uh, is also very much that feels like seeing the context, and so uh, it's that sense of you know in a way the family systems and all of this is part of finding a context where what is happening makes sense, and once you find a context where what is happening makes sense, there is the possibility of change. Right, absolutely. Thanks, thanks, David. 
This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.